Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, where we highlight the latest trends in law office and legal practice management to help you run your firm. Brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by Legal Fuel, the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar on Legal Talk Network. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm a Senior Practice Management Advisor at the Bar and one of the hosts for today's show, which is being recorded from our offices in Tallahassee, Florida. Hello, I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a Practice Management Advisor at the Florida Bar and a co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So our target audience at the Practice Resource Center at the Florida Bar is solo and small firm attorneys. They typically have the most questions for us about how to run the business side of their firms because they don't have the same infrastructure as an attorney who's joined a big law firm. But as their practice grows, there will come a moment when the attorney or attorneys no longer have the time to run the administrative side of their firms. And at that point, some decide they need to hire a professional firm administrator or they'll promote a trusted assistant to office manager. The problem is that the attorney may not know what they don't know about running a law firm. They may not be aware that there is a very helpful organization that is a powerful resource to help with all of these issues. That group is the Association of Legal Administrators, also known as ALA. And joining us today to discuss law firm management essentials and the ALA is Deborah Ellsbury. Debbie is the principal firm administrator for Threlkeld Stevenson in Indianapolis, Indiana. She's been actively working in the legal field since 1995. She attended Marion College in Indianapolis and earned her certified legal manager designation in 2009. Debbie is an active member of the Association of Legal Administrators, which has over 9,000 members and is the premier professional association connecting law firm leaders and managers. They provide extensive professional development, collaborative peer communities, strategic operational solutions, and business partner connections, empowering their members to lead the business of law. Debbie served her local ALA chapter in many leadership roles and is now the president-elect for the Association of Legal Administrators. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So for full disclosure, I do want to note that Carla and I are members of ALA as well, and we are board members of our local Florida Capital chapter here in Tallahassee. So Debbie, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your evolution from law firm employee to now being the president-elect of the International Professional Association for Law Firm Administrators. Uh, yeah, it's kind of actually quite a journey. I started out in a mid-sized uh, firm, considering in Indianapolis it was about a 20-attorney firm um, here as the assistant to the legal administrator at that point. Um, that firm, after a few years, imploded. And when that firm imploded, the managing member came to me and said, hey, we're going to split off and we're going to open our own firm. Will you go with us? And I'm like, sure. You know, I didn't even ask what the job title was. I didn't ask what the pay was. I was just like, yes. In fact, I even had that conversation with my husband. He goes, how much does it pay? I'm like, I didn't even ask. Um, uh. so, yeah, I was like, I just wanted to do it. Well, what I found when I got into legal management is that I didn't have any resources. I had no peers. It was just, you know, me 
and the attorneys and the people who who reported to me. And so that's when I started with ALA because I needed peers. I needed someone I can bounce ideas off of. I can find out what they're doing in their firms and I can bring it back to mine. And so at that point in 2003, I started in 1995. In 2003, I joined ALA. And I have not looked back since. Um, I think that that's an organization that has made me a better person, a better manager, and has funneled into my firm. And so I've been able to bring resources to my firm that as a small firm now of five attorneys, um, we wouldn't necessarily have access to. And uh, as someone who, when they jump in, jump in with both feet, I found myself working my way up uh, the leadership ranks. And next thing you know, here I am, president-elect and and happy, very happy to be so. Very interesting. I, I mean, you had what seems to be somewhat of a gradual education in becoming a law firm administrator. So you didn't just, you know, go from working or college straight to becoming a law firm administrator. Um, but for someone who's new to the position, who has, in fact, never been a law firm administrator or been in the legal field, period, what are the most vital areas of knowledge or skill sets that a new administrator must know or possess? I think one of the biggest things as a new administrator is that um, you ha- you do have to have these leadership skills and these communication skills. Many of the other things can be taught. Uh, you need to be able to communicate with staff. You need to be able to communicate well with the partners in the firm or the management committee or the managing partner or the managing member, whatever uh, format you have in the firm in which you're employed, is you have to be able to communicate well and concisely. So I would think that's one of the big things. You also need to be able to understand finance. For many times, the small firms, they do not have a CFO. You are the first line of defense. And then they have outside accountants who actually then prepare tax returns. But you have to understand the balance sheets because you can't advise a, a, a partner in a firm what they need to do financially if you don't understand the balance sheets and the profits and losses yourself. So those are the two biggies. And I think all the other softer skills can be can be taught and can be learned. And you can absorb that from people around you. What would you say to the firm owner who believes that they can continue to handle all of those day-to-day administrative tasks required to run a firm? I would ask them to spend about, I don't know, 60 days writing down how many hours they spend doing non-billable work and then put a dollar amount to that. And pretty soon um, you get to the point where you realize you shouldn't be doing it anymore. Not only that you can't do it as effectively, but you shouldn't be doing it because money is going out the door that shouldn't be. And so I've had people ask me, so how big of a firm do you need to have to be able to have an administrator? And I don't think that there's any set numbers, not like, well, when you get to four, that's when you need, or you get to six, that's when you need. Um, I think it's it's much uh, vaguer than that. So it that, that creates a little bit of a, a gray area for everyone. But I think it depends on your practice. And then it depends on who is doing what. And if you are spending a lot of time doing non-billable work managing your firm, when you could be doing billable work that's going to bring money in the door, that's when you need to go, wait a minute, what am I doing and why am I doing this? I think also the other thing you have to keep in mind if you're an attorney looking to hire an administrator, not only look at what you're doing today or tomorrow, but what you're going to do in six months, what you're going to do in a year, what you're going to do in two years. So if your intention, if your business plan is such that you expect to grow or um, bring in different 
practice groups, these kinds of things, if you're, if you're trying to bring in other attorneys, you also need to keep that in mind because many times what happens is the managing partner goes, I can do all of this. I can do it. I've got it. But then two years from now when things have grown or things have gotten you know, really busy, then you need an administrator. Now you're behind the rock in a hard spot because you're trying to bring someone in and you don't even have time to interview them. So you need to kind of plan um, where where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? Do you want to be doing these administrative tasks that you're doing now, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now? Um, so I, I think it's very difficult to convince an attorney sometimes that they need an administrator. But I think if you can put dollars to those hours, that speaks volumes because that's money out of their pocket. I think it's also important to note that if you are in a position where, uh, or if you're an attorney and you're in a position where you haven't put together that financial analysis on how much your mm-hmm. revenue you're losing, or you know you do comparables year after year, um, then maybe that's also a sign you need a firm administrator because that's part of their job, understanding the financial information and providing the analysis for the firm um, in order to become more profitable. So, And they don't teach a whole lot of that in law schools. Right, right, exactly. So <laughs> if, if you've all. never heard of, uh, if you've never performed any kind of financial analysis for your firm, that's a red flag in and of itself. So you mentioned that you went from a bigger firm to a smaller firm now. Um, tell us about the differences in your role when you were running uh, the big firm of what I think you said 20 attorneys versus the small firm of five. Uh, with the 20 attorney firm, um, so many of the, the tasks that fall under my umbrella today were done by other people. So like, for instance, the billing. So all of the billing corrections, all of making sure that the attorneys were getting their time in. Uh, that thing was, that, that was something that was always covered by someone else. I didn't have to do that. That person just reported to me. Uh, then, you know, you had your accounts payable people and you had your accounts receivable people, and they handled that. And you had, we had a paralegal in the office who handled any kind of collection work that we did. Well, what happens when you get smaller and smaller? You no longer have those individual people. And many times when you're in a small firm, your administrator is the only person in the back office that's not producing what it takes to practice law. So, you know, I, I don't do what the paralegals do. I don't do what the, the legal uh, secretaries do. I don't do, I have a receptionist and that's it. And so everything else falls under um, my umbrella. So if it involves anything other than the practice of law, for the most part, it's mine. And so you talked about the financial part of that. Even at my small firm, I've taken what I did at when the firm was larger, and I still provide those same kind of financial re- uh, reporting every month. And so I forecast where we're going. I forecast where it's, what it's going to look like, how we are versus a budget. So I bring a budget in. Um, I highlight anything of note that's off from one month to the next or from last year to this year. So those are kind kind of financial analysis that the attorneys get now rather than just coming in and going, so how much money is in the checking account? <laughs> you know, can I, can I add some, please? Yes, yes. We're like, you know, is there enough there that maybe I could have something? Um, so that's no longer a thing because we have it very forecasted. And I, and I stay on top of that. And so I always let them know when there's variances coming. Another thing that um, I do now that we didn't um, have before is I handle all of the contracts. So I've taken that work off of our managing partner by, you know, I look at all of the copier contracts 
and I go. I don't make the final decision. I I pass it through to him, but generally he looks at me and goes, you know, well, what do you think? And he usually defers to me. Um, I will tell you, if you are an attorney thinking about hiring an administrator, I would strongly encourage you to be able to pass that baton of some of those things to your administrator. You will have a much happier administrator, and you will getting be getting more bang for your buck. Um, for instance, my firm is moving November 1st. So we're moving from our current space um, to another fun. space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I enjoy this part of it. So this is kind of fun, picking out colors and all of that. But we had right. me and the managing partner sat down and had a conversation about, so what do you expect to be involved in? What do you want to have input in? And, you know, finally he just looks at me because I say, would you want to know what colors? Do you want to pick out the lampshades? You know, and he finally goes, no, I don't want to do any of that. So just keep me in the loop. And unless you do something that I'm like, oh, I don't care for that, he says, I'm not going to say anything. Just keep me in the loop and let me know. To have that kind of um, rapport and trust and confidence of your managing member is invaluable to me. I mean, that's probably what motivates me more than anything else is feeling like I'm a part of a team. So if you are an attorney looking to hire an administrator, ask yourself, are you willing and able to pass the baton on some of these things and let someone else handle them for you? So you made a couple of points that really made me think. When you are a firm administrator and say you have two attorneys and five uh, support staff, you always think that the administrator that has the hundred attorneys and uh, you know and a huge support staff, you're kind of in awe of them, and you think that they know so much more than you do. And you make a good point: the smaller your firm, the more hats that administrator is wearing, and may even have a a larger skill set than someone who has the luxury of having an HR department and a, you know, an accounting department. Um, and you and I, when we've talked before, uh, we talked about how we ran payroll manually. And I, I love doing all of that. Um, so giving that up, you know, because then you have a payroll service or you have that department. Um, but it's interesting. It, it, it kind of gives me a different outlook when I'm meeting other administrators to remember that those administrators at the small firms are doing so many things. Right. Uh, they, they can influence the decision-making process yeah, much more. Absolutely. Than, they than they than really have firm. their hands on everything. I mean, they're in a large firm. Yeah. yeah. But, you, but you also touch on a good point about, I think so many attorneys, partly because of the trust accounting, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. I know in Florida it is and probably in every state, the attorney is afraid to turn over those things to the administrator. Very reluctant. So they still are trying to hold on to a lot of that, and then, which means the administrator can't really do their whole job. What, what would you say to those attorneys that are having trouble letting go of, of you know, or gradually? What, what do you tell an administrator? How would you talk to that attorney? Well, I think part of it flies back to uh, what position is the managing member and managing partner in when he's hiring that administrator. So if he's behind the eight ball and he's just taking the first person that'll fill a chair, like, oh, yep, you hit our requirements, good. Now, you don't necessarily have that relationship right off the bat. Uh, and so I, I really do believe that it's just letting them, you're going to have to start giving them little things. It's kind of like our children. And I hate to compare my job with, you know, a parent-child relationship, but it is somewhat that way until you know that you can trust that person um, with 
all of your information. Uh, the, the managing partner in my firm has jokingly said, well, he's said it jokingly, but it's really very, very honest, is that in many respects, I know more things about him than his wife knows about him because I do know all of it. I mean, I know all the financial aspects of it. I know exactly how much he gets paid. I, you know, I, and I spend eight hours a day with him. So you have to have somebody in that role that you trust. And you can't just automatically go, well, you know, I hired you, so I bequeath you that I trust you. That's not very realistic and not going to happen. So generally what happens is, and I've um, encouraged a friend of mine who's come into legal management to ask for little jobs and show that you're trustworthy. And a lot of it is being able to keep a confidence. I mean, that's huge. And it's very difficult for someone who suddenly was working with their peers, who is now their supervisor. And you realize that your relationships have to change and your managing uh, partner has to see that change in you if you are higher within. Um, it does make it difficult because all these people who worked with you, who were your friends, now come to you and go, so what about, and you're like, you know, I can't talk to you about that. And you have to be okay with that. So there, there's a lot of trust issues. And just like anything else, you have to build up to that a little bit. But as a managing partner, you have to let go and allow that to happen. It's a slippery slope. To Christine's point, I think sort of handing over the baton and giving the administrator power to actually manage the finances trickles down to all of the other areas uh, of a legal administrator's role. It trickles down to HR and her ability to properly recruit and select employees and uh, operations management. You know, you're moving, you're, you're purchasing things for your new space. So the budget. I mean, the budget goes mm-hmm. into effect. So I think giving over the baton in that aspect is like, key almost because it trickles down into every other category. And I also, I, I make the point when I've talked to attorneys, if, if you're terrified, you know, of, of this step, so guess what? The trust account is still your responsibility. So let the person, you know, they, they're cutting the checks. If you, if you have, if you're doing personal injury and they're cutting all these checks to doctor's offices and whatever they're doing, let that person manage it, let them print everything out retain signing so that at least you're touching, you know, when that money's going out, you are seeing something. Yeah. I mean, the attorneys and the partners should, yeah. should maintain oversight like yeah. in any organization. But the flip side of that is in my experience, the attorneys that were like what you said, someone walks in the door and they're mm-hmm. like, here, you know how to do this, right? And they're right back to their cases. They just want to go practice law. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. Please keep your hand in it. Some, please Definitely. know something about. Definitely. Yeah. And you. And you, a good law firm administrator will make sure that the attorneys are always aware of what's going on. Right. And you may have to push you them. You force them to read, yes. the, to look at the information. Because oh, I know absolutely. I had to do that. I had to mm-hmm. say, no, you have to look at this. You have <laughs> to look at the reconciliation every month. Yeah. You please look at the, the bank statements, those kind of things. And so you'll get there, but it, people come at it from completely different yeah. directions. And I mean, empowering employees in general is, is important, but your firm administrator sort of sets the tone for everyone. Well, and most most people who go into this position when they're going into a new firm, they're going to understand that it's going to take a little bit of time. And so most administrators are going to say, let's put some policies in place where you feel comfortable and have the oversight that you want to feel good. And I have the ability to do my job. And so every month I give the managing member um, right. written mm-hmm. reports that show all kinds of things. I run off the check register. I we I give him a copy of the bank statements because there are no other people in my firm to be my check and balance other than him. 
So he has to be the check and balance because I would be giving people in my firm information that they shouldn't have. So he is my check and I'm his check, you know. Um, but as far as like the trust accounting, I'm, in the state of Indiana, it's, I'm not able to sign a trust check. So I can write them. He has to sign those. When I first started, I had a check signing authority mm-hmm. up to $250, for example. And so anything over $250, he needed to sign. However, now that has been waived, and he's like, just take care of it. But he also has access to our electronic programs. So at any point, he can go into um, the accounts payable program and he can look through the invoices that are setting there or the ones that have been paid. He can go into the general ledger and he can see what the bank statement or bank account balances are. He can see all of that stuff. And I've given him the passwords to all the checking accounts. So he has the ability. I don't know that he ever looks at it. I don't know that I ever ask him. He never comes to me and says, hey, what is this? But I always make sure he has the ability to do that. Should he ever be uncomfortable or have a question or if I'm not here? Um, he, he does that. And then, you know, talking about if I'm not here, I have a book in my office. It's a three ring binder. I call it if Debbie gets hit by a bus. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> it literally does say that. And I have a copy of it electronically on my local drive that only he has access to in the office. So he has access to this particular drive and setting on it is instructions, literally step-by-step how to do payroll. So I literally wrote it and I had my grandson who is 10 set here and I see if he could do payroll following my instructions. And that's how I knew when I had something missing because he didn't know what to do next. Um, you know, how taxes need to be paid, how the draws are done and all of this information that we can't share with the general staff but if something should happen to me, it wouldn't come to a complete standstill. And I think that's kind of a concern that attorney has. Well, what if she goes on vacation? Who's going to write a check? So you have these, these other workaround ways to get things accomplished. But I think every administrator should have a hit by a bus or a train or a car <laughs> or fell off the side of the earth or whatever booklet um, or file somewhere so that somebody can pick up their job and at least do the main thing. I love that. And you should have one of those for your spouse at home if you're also <laughs> running things. You so. should have one of those for everyone in your staff. It'll, that, exactly. it'll be awesome to yeah. just cut down on training time if you Mm -hmm. can just hand staff a policies and procedures manual specific to their position. Um, But it's even more critical, obviously, for the firm administrator because they are the all-knowing. Well, and the firm that I joined that was much larger and had a more diversified practice area, I, along with someone that I'd selected from each of those areas, I said, hey, we need an instruction manual. When we're growing, we're going to bring in new people. We're not going to have as much time. We would like these things to be very much a system. And so it it helped me learn what everybody else's job right, was. Right, right. And I, I don't think people had looked into that before. And so we had these beautiful binders. So I really I mean, and I that's really again, that's that. also part of the administrator's job, yes. finding efficiencies or inefficiencies in particular mm-hmm. positions across the organization. So, I mean, in doing that, you know, it's an exercise in, in exactly that and in, in learning what your firm needs to do better at every level. Yeah. And I think one of the things the administrator should always do is uh, get input from the support staff because you don't know right. uh, what's going on in every area of the yeah, firm. The I think attorney that's shouldn't so be telling the secretary how she should, you know, do her processes if it's ineffective and that's not mm-hmm. how she does it. So, uh, yeah. 
The, if if Debbie if Debbie gets hit by a bus, I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. everyone should call it that, even Concern if they're not here, Debbie. Yeah. <laughs> That's the new industry standard. Um, well, you touched on <laughs> yeah, Debbie gets hit by a bus, <laughs> but that is one thing that the administrator brings to the table, though, right, the right. ability mm-hmm. to take that step back and see what's right. happening in the firm and see what can move easier and what can right. be more time effective because. Lost time is money out of right. the attorney's pocket. And, I, and so, that's how you have you to know, frame get it. An, yes, get an administrator who looks at that money as her money, um, which I am. I look at that my job is to make this firm as profitable as I possibly can because that makes the pie bigger. And it makes it bigger for everybody. But I know that every penny that I spend, because I'm not responsible for bringing the money in the door, so every penny that I spend is wisely spent. And I look at everything. I drive some people nuts because I'm like, what is this charge? What is that charge? Why are we doing this? Why are we paying that much? You know. But I do treat it like it is my personal money, and they are taking it out of my pocket. And now I don't have lunch money. Right. Well, that's part of empowering your firm administrator. You have skin in the game, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't have someone come in who doesn't care and is just right. there for the paycheck because it'll right. never work. Right. And if you do, then you need to replace them and find someone else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. You said that the partners really set the tone. So how does the philosophy of the partners how does that affect the firm administrator? Can you give us some examples? One of the biggest examples is there is an HR issue, for example, in my firm, and someone goes to the managing partner and shuts his door and says, hey, I want to talk to you. He immediately stops the conversation and calls me. Or he says, you need to go talk to Debbie. He doesn't seem to insert himself in those conversations. He takes He, he lets the staff know that my opinion is valuable and that he will defer to me in certain situations. Um, All the time I know at any point he can sit there and say, this is how I feel and this is what I want and I will do whatever that is uh, as long as it's not immoral or illegal. Um, But he does defer to me. And so that sets the tone for the rest of the staff. If you're going to have an administrator, you have to support her. And if you're, so you can't allow these side conversations that undermine authority. You have to let staff know, hey, this is the administrator, and we're going to call her into this conversation, or you need to go have this conversation with her because I'm going to defer to her or him, whichever it is. So demonstrating that respect to you is, is, goes a long way with the staff, how the staff will respond to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it truly sets the tone because if you have a management committee who is undercutting the administrator on every step, number one, you're going to have a very unhappy administrator and you're going to have a very empowered staff that feel like they don't need to listen to the administrator. So, for instance, my staff, when they ask for PTO, they don't go to their attorney and say, I'd like to take off next Monday. They come to me. And then I say whether it's approved or not. And then I send an email saying, so-and-so has asked for Monday. Do you have an issue with that? 
Um, is there anything that would preclude um, them not being able to have Monday off? That kind of thing. So that's just they just know that I handle that, and they don't go to their attorneys and go, "Hey, I'd like to do this. Would you, you know, would you take care of this for me?" So it's not just the managing partner that has to have that. He has to set the tone for every other attorney in the office, so that you don't have all of these little side alliances, which undercut the ability for the administrator to do her job effectively. So while we're on the topic of HR, what are some tips? Right. <laughs> well, it, it's important because, again, if you don't have an HR department, it is one of those functions that should be delegated to the legal administrator. Absolutely. Because it's, I mean, there is no way that an attorney is going to handle it effectively and be able to focus on their, you know, casework. So. And it's the one of the, I think, the most Problematic. Well, I was going to say <laughs> the most important assets of the firm is a is oh, a definitely is a human you know, resources a, a very competent, trustworthy, well trained, you know, right. good attitude staff. Like you, right. it is that's so valuable when you're practicing law. If you have a team mm-hmm. that you can rely on and you know that you can count on them, right? So, what are some tips you can share about hiring support staff that that you've learned over the years? So, you know, an attorney maybe perhaps shouldn't just put a secretary needed sign up. <laughs> on their window, you know, there, there's a lot more to it than, you know, just saying I need a secretary or I need a paralegal. Right. Well, I've always kind of looked at it as I hire the person, I can teach them the skills. So when I'm interviewing someone, I'm looking for someone um, for their attitude, um, for how they interact with people, for their their teamwork ethic. Uh, those are the kinds of things because I'm like, I can teach them the skills that they need. It's great if they come with that, that even makes them more valuable, but I've always hired the person first. And so I ask a lot of questions along, you know, problem solving and how do you interact with people and those kinds of things. I don't ask, have you typed a pleading? You know, do you know what a certificate is? <laughs> I don't ask those kinds of questions because like I said, I can teach you that, but I'm looking for a particular kind of person and not to pat myself on the back or anything, but I have two legal secretaries now, both have 20 plus years. I have four paralegals. The shortest one's been here five years. The oldest one's been here 15. So we have a lot of continuity. Knock on, I'm going to knock on wood as I say this, because you know what happens when mm-hmm. you start to brag on yourself. Um, humility comes a knocking on your door. But um, and I think that's because we've tried to fill with the correct people, not necessarily only skill. So that personally has my, been my philosophy in hiring the support staff. And I think that's amazing because if you've been a legal administrator, you know that there can be a huge turnover um, with the paralegals that move firm to firm. And if you're in a small town, that becomes problematic because of the cases that are being handled between the firms. So getting them to stay um, is a big deal. And But I want you to talk about, and this was uh, when when we talked before, um, I I mentioned this. There's this very delicate balance as the firm administrator that you, the tightrope that you walk because you are the Mm -hmm. supervisor and the advocate and kind of the warden of the staff. But at the same time, you've got to implement the directions of the shareholders. Talk about that relationship when you're in the middle. (laughs) Well, it can be a push and pull sometimes um, because sometimes what you would like to do for your staff is in direct conflict with what 
maybe you've been directed or maybe the course in which you need to take. And so um, that becomes um, very difficult. And so there's been a few times I've had to, you know, shut my door and take a few deep breaths because what I'm about to tell one of the staff people I know is not what they want to hear. Because in the long run, I am here representing the firm. I have to make sure that the decisions that are made are in the best interest of the firm, not any one particular person. So at the end of the day, that's the filter I have to run it through. But it is something that you are in conflict with because the staff reports to me and they look to me to be their advocate. And there's been times when being their advocate is not in the best interest of what I'm trying to do, especially, I'll say, we just because they would give me an example of that. I would say that that would be come review time. Come review time, I have maybe a few staff members who are high flyers more so than others. And so I want to reward them for that. But then I go into review conversations with management committee or the managing partner, and he's like, well, I just want to do 3% across the board. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Uh, And um, so you better have your ducks in a row when you go into the meeting and be prepared to have a conversation about why doing a across-the-board increases I don't believe are good for morale. Um, everybody thinks, oh, we all got the same raise. Well, it didn't really matter that I went above and beyond. Um, so this is that's one of the most recent times that I felt that I was in conflict um, between what I wanted to do for the employees and kind of the directive that I was trying to work around. And we managed to iron it out because I said, okay, so if you're given the best person this much money, then let's say that's the top. And I said, let's figure out what 3% is and then divide that money out. Um, And we got there, and it it worked, and it was fine. But you do have times when you're going to be in conflict, but I have to, at the very end of the day, have to realize I am here. I was hired not to be an advocate for the staff necessarily, but to do what was best for the firm. And sometimes that even puts me having difficult conversations with a managing partner because then I go in and say, now we have a problem. Well, how demoralizing it right. is it for the the high uh, performers that are bringing you know so much effort to the firm and and billing more hours to be told I, I, there's nothing more demoralizing as uh, across the board everybody gets pats pats on the heads and says good job good job good job no no specifics they don't mention what what it is you did that was a good job I that is enraging to the people right. that are really killing it. But it's easier. Right. Yes. It's, it's <laughs> but, easy. but that's why you have a firm administrator because you are better equipped to do uh, sort of performance management and to mm-hmm. uh, bring forward, uh, you know, a, a good argument as to why on across the board isn't the case. And you provide solutions. Right. Yeah. Um, it sounds fair, right. but it's not Right. Fair. Right. So, yes. uh, again, back to right. the sort of why we're speaking today. That's why you need a firm administrator. Yes. Yes. Well, you need a firm administrator for so many reasons, right. which brings me to my next question for you, Debbie. Okay. So the day that I started at my bigger firm, I walked in and I had my best suit on <laughs> and there'd been a little meet and greet breakfast and I was setting up my office. And then the ladies' restroom by that was for our clients, the toilet overflowed. All the paralegals were out in the <laughs> hall. Everybody was looking at each other. We had clients in the waiting room. And I thought, okay, I don't know if they have a plumber on call. I don't know what's happening. So I just went straight in the bathroom and I located a plunger from the kitchen and went in there. I locked myself in the door and I plunged that toilet 
I plunged that toilet. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is going to make everyone think. Like, I just was very concerned. I came out and all the partners were standing outside the bathroom and their mouths were open. And they were so thrilled that I had plunged the stupid toilet. I thought it was going to go badly. <laughs> but I thought, OK, now don't put this on my job description. I did not want that to be my, one of my official roles. I don't want to do this every yeah, exactly. day. In that moment, I was a hero and I just never wanted to do it again. But tell us, what are some of the unexpected tasks or roles you've had to take on inside the firms you've worked at? Well, I will tell you, I am the official best getter outer of jams in the large printer. Um, <laughs> I am the first stop before they call. Used to, they just call, and I'd, I'd go back there, and I'd get it out, and they'd go, cancel the call. I got it out. Um, so, yes, um, I can take the jams out. Nine times out of ten, I can get it going again without support. I've made coffee. I do that uh, often. I, I wash dishes. I've um, sent out a message and said, you have an hour to get your stuff out of the refrigerator and marked. Otherwise, everything's going in the trash. Um, I've, so I've cleaned out the refrigerator. I, too, have plunged the toilets. I had a paralegal walk in my office with this shocked look in her face, and she goes, I just flushed the toilet paper holder thing down the toilet. What do I do? Ooh. And I go, uh, well, it's bye-bye, and we just got to hope it doesn't clog. I don't, there's nothing we can do. I had to go out and buy a new toilet paper roll holder. So, yeah, I mean, it's whatever needs to be done. I don't respond just like you. I don't respond, well, that's not my job. It needs to be done. We're going to get it done. And uh, I think that that also, that plays well with the staff when they realize you're not going to walk around and go, oh, well, that's not my job. Because if you're setting that tone, then you're going to have paralegals telling secretaries, that's not my job. And secretaries telling paralegals, that's not my job. And that's not the tone you want in your office at all. So, yeah, I mean, I think any legal administrator has a few horror stories of, you know, something that had happened <laughs> that they're like, well, I didn't plan on that today or I wouldn't have worn what I had on. Yeah, yeah. And then in Florida, we've had the situation where uh, unexpectedly uh, a hurricane mm -hmm. is in the Gulf and everyone has evacuated to different areas of the country. And suddenly your job is to, after the storm, find out, hmm, did our office make it? Are our files all over the parking lot? And and it's also in those moments that you do earn the respect of your staff because you're the one that reached out to say, are you okay? Is your family okay? Is your home still there? What do you need from us? And so uh, I think your relationship grows and your duties grow. Um, and the lawyers can go back to practicing law if you've made a plan in place to get everybody into the cloud or, you know, you've set up the right technology or the satellite offices, you're about to go through this move. Um, so it's, it's, it's always something new. Um, have you had to train attorneys in technology? Because you, when you're talking about making sure they have access to the finances and the everything, um, are you selecting the technology at the firms? Yes, I do. In fact, I went through a managing partner change earlier this year. So I went from an older managing partner to a much younger managing partner. And so his um, first edict to me was, I would like to go and be 100% in the cloud by the end of next year. 
so that has kind of um that was on the front burner until we realized, oh, we're moving. So that got kind of shoved back and rearranged <laughs> um, because there's only so much change I can throw at people at one time. We don't do a lot. Of, we're not one of the fancy firms. I mean, we're kind of high speed, low drag kind of. We do insurance defense work, so we need to be able to pop out documents quickly and um, in a very timely manner because it is truly six minute increments for us. But we have, I mean, I am responsible for making sure that the attorneys are using the technology that we do have properly. And I also train the attorneys on how to enter their billable time because our attorneys enter their own time. Um, That's something I started way back in the day, long before people started doing this. So my attorneys enter their own time because I'm like, I don't want to pay somebody to type something you already printed or typed. So just type it. And so now no one knows different here. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, I enter my own time. But consequently comes with that is then I have to train them on how best to word their entries because I don't want them to get marked down because they're like, well, don't know why he was doing that. So I do a lot of that kind of training with the attorneys. I typically do not hire the attorneys. I set in on the interviews for the attorneys, but I do not hire them. Um, That decision lays with the managing partner. Um, he does look to me and go, well, what did, what do you think? You know, what did you see? What did you hear? But he typically handles the interview. I just sit in, and then I talk about benefits. But the remainder of the staff I do hire, and I do train them on all the technology that we use. I don't have a trainer, so it's me. And thank goodness for YouTube videos. <laughs> Presumably you also take part in maybe in some of corrective action if, if necessary or, you know, I do all scenario. of that. Termination. Yeah. I, yeah, the difficult conversations. Yeah, Attorneys right. typically are, are they're very happy for you to handle that. Right, right, right. Um, right. Well, and, and again, I, I know when I, I walk into the office and I shut the door and he'll roll his eyes and go, well, this isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. But again, they're the difficult conversations that firm administrators not only have to have, but are better trained and better equipped to have mm-hmm. um, without, you know, making it personal. Mm-hmm. Well, I so. would rather do that because I understand things a little bit better. Uh, and I'll give you an example. I had um, a managing partner that sent an email to one of the male staff about wearing flip-flops in the office. We have a dress code. It is literally that you wear some. We don't have a real strict dress code in our office because we do not have contact with the with the general public. So, but, so I didn't get too worried. He rode his bike in, you know, he had a suit hanging on the back of his door. He sitting at his desk, get flip-flops on. I don't care. So, but apparently this kind of got under the managing partner's skin a little bit. And he sent an email, copied me on it, said, please don't wear flip-flops in the office. And I read this and I'm like, oh, so he comes in my office. He's so proud of himself because he'd handled an HR situation for me. He said, did you see my email? And I was like, oh yeah, I did. He goes, what's wrong? And I said, did you take a lap through the office before you sent the email? He goes, what do you mean? I said, there's not a woman in this office that doesn't have flip-flops on. And he goes, well, that's different. No. No, no, it's not. Again, firm administrators (laughs) are familiar with employment laws. Very important. (laughs) No, it's not. I can't put a bow on it or glitter on it and make it different. It's still the same thing. So then, you know, he he walks back to his office and he fires off another email. I was mistaken. I shouldn't have said anything. Wear whatever you want. (laughs) Well, don't go that far. It's just a classic example of he thought he was being helpful. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I love the fact he was trying to, you know, he's seen something he wanted to deal with. It, but it was something that would have been better had he talked to me before he sent an email. 
Right. Because right. I could have told him, you can't do that. Right. Um, Again. Unless uh, you're going to do that for uh, everybody. It, mm-hmm. it seems like it seems like something obvious, but at the same time, it may, may be in complete contradiction with discrimination laws and mm-hmm. all kinds of things. So again, back to the why we're talking. This mm-hmm. is why firm right. administrators are so right. critical because they have familiarized themselves with all of this beyond sort of the cursory, oh, yes, you know, this is the Civil Rights Act of whatever, this or other. I mean, they, <laughs> we, we know what we're talking about and, and, you know, at least, and we're equipped to research it before taking action mm-hmm. as opposed to just shooting out an angry email. Mm-hmm. Um, so that leads me to my next question. In order to sort of give the stamp of approval, ALA uh, offers this certified legal manager designation. Um, so can you, CLM for short, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it is to become a CLM, what it represents, um, and, you know, if it should be, how you consider different candidates with the CLM designation? The CLM designation started, I would say, probably in the mid-90s when we started having the certification program. And so what is required to even set for the test is there's certain educational requirements, much like any other certification program. And depending on whether you are a functional specialist, um, which is an, an HR director, an IT director, a finance director, um, there's additional hour requirements for um, those individuals. But if you're the overall um, legal administrator, then there's a, an education requirement and then you can set for the test. The test, if you pass the test, the the thought is that you could step into a 50-attorney firm and hit the ground running because you have enough of a knowledge base um, to do that. And so I will tell you that I took the test in 2009. Um, At that point, I thought, well, if I don't pass, I'm okay with that. I wasn't even going to tell my firm I was doing it. Finally, I did. I said, oh, by the way, if you walk into my office and I have books all over my the table in my office and I look like I'm studying, that's because I am. And I told him what I was doing. He goes, well, then I will pay for that because that's going to make you a better administrator for me if you are studying and taking that. So he said, by all means, let me fund whatever the out-of-pocket costs are. So that was, I was very, very pleased and, and blessed with that. But I had decided I didn't care whether I passed, you know, because I had learned a lot. I, you know, I learned things I didn't know I didn't know. And until you get the envelope in the mail, you think, I don't care whether I passed. Suddenly, at that point, it was an envelope. Now it's an email. But at that point, when I took the test, you got an envelope. And you have that envelope in your hand. Suddenly, whether you passed or not becomes a whole lot more important. So I just held it. You know, my husband was like, well, are you going to open the envelope? I'm like, I don't know whether I want to or not. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's, it's a designation that typically people have that have, that are, have been or currently are ALA members. It hasn't quite taken on what we'd hoped it would be uh, for people to understand that when you have that CLM after your name, it means that you have a wide breadth of knowledge, everything from HR. It tests you on HR, finance, IT, general operations. Um, All of these different core knowledge groups are covered in this test, and that, in theory, you should be able to walk into a 50-attorney firm and hit the ground running. So we would like to see more people think, hey, this CLM is important. And so since this person has a CLM, I know they have the knowledge base that I need. Just to give a rundown for our listeners of the topics that are covered and what a CLM should know and 
does because they've passed the exam. Finance management, which includes general accounting, financial information and analysis, human resource management, which covers employee selection, promotion, performance management, compensation, organization development, legal industry and business management, which covers the legal industry, business management, kind of self-explanatory. Operations management, which includes technology, automation, operations management, which back to your particular situation, you're moving, you design Mm -hmm. space, all of that, that goes into the resources that the firm needs to operate that most people don't even think about the desks you you use every day, the chairs you're sitting on every day. um, All of that is is part of what a CLM uh, or a firm administrator handles. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there you go. Um, so what are the reasons firm owners should encourage uh, their administrator to join ALA? Well, I can speak very personally to this in that um, I would not be as good at my job if I was not a member of ALA. Having the ability to pick up the phone and talk to someone and say, so I have this issue, and knowing that I'm in a cone of silence, that I can have this conversation with someone and they're going to give me direct feedback um, is invaluable. And I cannot tell you how many times. And it's it's even gotten to the point now they walk in my office and they go, so what are your ALA buddies doing about X? <laughs> you know, because um, I give ALA, I let them know, I got this answer from ALA, so I give ALA credit. Um, whenever. In fact, I think sometimes ALA gets credit for stuff I'm not sure is theirs, but I give it to them anyway. I'm like, ah. (laughs) Um, It's like, where'd you find that out? Oh, I'm sure it was ALA. But it's just having that. I'll give you a terrific example of how this pays off. I was sitting at a table with a bunch of ALA members shortly after the new tax um, laws came into effect. And I am not a CPA. We have an outside accounting service, that uh, firm that does our tax returns, and I just provide them with all the information and am a resource if they have a question. So I, you know, funnel all that off. Well, they're have, we're sitting around the table having this conversation about the new tax laws going into effect, and they're talking about well, what are you going to do about your parking, you know? And I'm listening to this, and I'm realizing they're talking about their employee parking. Well, we provide as our benefit in our firm paid parking which suddenly under the new tax laws, which I did not know, was suddenly not taxed, um, was not a tax write-off. It's not a business expense any longer. And uh, that's a significant chunk of change for us. So I started asking questions, which I would not have even known had I not been surrounded by ALA members and we're having a conversation. Um, So we had to change the way we handled our parking expense which I didn't hear that from my accountant. Um, I didn't hear it in the news. I heard it from ALA and have saved, consequently, my firm, you know, several thousand dollars because we had to change the way we handled our parking expense. And it was purely through ALA. That's a perfect example. I love that. It looks like we've reached the end of our program, and I have to say it's been a delight. Thank you, Deborah Ellsbury, for joining us today. It has been my pleasure. So where can our listeners go if they have questions or they'd like more information about the Association of Legal Administrators? Well, I'd start with the website. It's uh, www.alanet.org. So it's alanet.org. And you can find all of the information on there. If you look about, you can find um, the board of directors. You can find me. And if nothing else, shoot me an email. I will be happy to answer any questions someone has. And for our listeners, I just want to interject here one moment. 
since most of our membership are solo and small firms, mm-hmm. you can, as an attorney, join ALA if you are the administrator in your firm. If you are a solo and you want to take advantage of these incredible resources, get on that website, look at what they have to offer, and determine if you if you want to become a member, if you want to be one of us. Excellent point, mm-hmm. Carla. Any attorney, any That's attorney right. can join ALA. Any attorney. So we would gladly have, have you as a member. Welcome you. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar podcast brought to you by Legal Fuel, the practice resource center of the Florida Bar on Legal Talk Network. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Florida Bar podcast brought to you by the Florida Bar's practice resource center and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar, Legal Fuel, the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.